now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the second episode of our new R&D season, Just Science host Dr. John Morgan speaks with human population geneticist Dr. Kenneth Kidd, professor emeritus of genetics and senior research scientist with 44 years under his belt at Yale University. With the advent of massively parallel sequencing, microhaplotypes have become a valuable new type of DNA marker for use in forensics. These markers have great potential through MPS not only because their statistical power can greatly exceed that of standard forensic markers typed by capillary electrophoresis, but because they are also excellent at quantifying biologic relationships without having to worry about the high mutation rates. Listen to the discussion surrounding microhaplotypes to the implications on forensics that new research in this field is providing. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today, we are at the annual American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in beautiful Seattle, Washington, beautiful but cold Seattle, Washington. We are very fortunate to have with us one of the most eminent researchers that has chosen to make forensic science part of his work, and that is uh, from Yale University of Dr. Kenneth Kidd. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. I'm happy to be at the whole meeting. Now, for those of you who don't know, NIJ has been funding Dr. Kidd's work for a number of years. I actually, as you might remember. Close to 10. Close to 10, okay. Some of the first grants actually came on my watch when I was at NIJ. I remember very distinctly the conversations with the director at that time saying, how are we gonna be able to afford Yale's overhead rates? But the argument was that Dr. Kidd's work was so outstanding that we had to find a way. So, and we're glad we did. A lot of outstanding work in genetics over, over many, many years that has uh, benefited the forensic science community. And I think people need to learn a little bit more about it because it's extraordinary. So you've been doing work at Yale for a long time before you ever did any work in forensic science, isn't that right? That's correct. I started at Yale in 1973. So the particular kind of polymorphism that you've done that really has been most important to your work in forensic science is single nucleotide polymorphisms. There's a lot of other polymorphisms out there. Right. But you have really focused in on SNPs more than anything else. Right. Why? Well, because that's what I was doing. Sure. In everything I've just finding DNA polymorphism. Sure. A couple of them were insertion deletion polymorphisms, but mm -hmm. by and large they were all single nucleotide polymorphisms. And Somewhere along the line, in the mid-80s, a little later, there was a, a trial with DNA polymorphisms from Life Code in Albany, New York, Wesley et al. And I'm not quite sure why, but I got asked to come as an expert witness. Mm-hmm. I'd never testified before. And it was, was kind of strange and interesting, <laughs> a new experience. 
Right. And we weren't yet at the did you lie before or are you lying now stage. But we got that because then I got asked to testify more and more. I made sense. I could speak in a way deliberately. I always speak slowly, but I could explain things without using a lot of jargon. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of experience giving lectures to psychiatrists, so it was important to keep the genetic jargon down. And I got asked to testify, and I started doing a lot of testimony, enjoyed it, but then gradually faded out after several years because it was generally accepted in the courts Mm -hmm. and had gone through all the appellate divisions. But initially, there were decisions against DNA. Fortunately, whenever I testified, the pro-DNA was accepted. I think I had better credentials because we were doing this in the lab all the time, getting DNA polymorphism. And this initially was the VNTR era, Mm -hmm. but that's the molecular biology we were using and understood. And the other aspect was how frequent are these in the population, et cetera. And I had impeccable population genetics credentials, and by then was already starting to do, I'd done some as a postdoc, to do human population studies. Sure. So basically, I mean, because you had worked with Josafala many years before, I mean, you had built up a lot of knowledge about the statistics, the population genetics per se. And that really is not, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it's perfectly applicable to the human genome. And all my postdoc work and the modeling of complex disorders mm-hmm. all involves population genetics. The National Academies, of course, went and weighed in in the 90s a couple of times with respect to being critical of some of the population genetics of the time. And the first meeting was extremely political. And I was there, but not as a panel member. And I think because by then I'd been testifying pro-DNA, I was just you're too much the prosecutor's friend is what I your was the perception much, was, which is, yeah. which is odd coming today. It seems odd to think of you in, in that regard today. And I had clearly consulted for the defense several times, but they never wanted to put me on the stand. They had the right to understand how good or bad the data were, but in my opinion, I could not make a strong case against the data in those cases. It may have been weak, but it was what it was. So what's your view of the result that the academies came up with then? Do you think that they overstated their criticisms of population studies at the time? Or Well, I like to think good and highly qualified population geneticists, there was a lot of crap being done. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) So there still is. Mm -hmm. I can be highly critical of a lot of forensics. I review a lot of forensic papers. 
I've seen some really good ones, but a lot of them are not very good because if you're trained in forensics, if you're trained in molecular biology, you don't necessarily understand the population genetics. Sure. I mean, it's not that they're all stupid. Yeah. I mean, you had a very particular view of it, though, too, in, a, in some sense, because coming from, as you said, a lot of what you worked in were SNPs, and at that time, SNPs were very, and I guess still are, associated with disease states of one sort or another, but not always. And so the forensic community was very much directed toward the STRs. And right. to some extent, that might have when been a strategic mistake. Right in the middle of tyrosine hydroxylase. Mm -hmm. Right. They didn't want to be around any gene that might have medical significance. So they put it right in the middle of a known gene that's involved in a very important biological function. <laughs> I can tell it bothers you today. Even today, you're still <laughs> angry. <laughs> I don't know that I'm angry. Annoyed, maybe. But the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They just didn't understand. Sure. At least according to me. So they didn't want to use SNPs. I still, you know, SNPs might have a function. STRs don't. Give me a break. <laughs> Most STRs are regulatory. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe that more powerfully uh, influential of uh, than phenotypic. Many yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. So let's explore this below <laughs> because this is a hobby horse of mine, too. And as I said before the podcast, uh, one of our uh, dear friends at NIJ, Lisa Foreman, she used to run the Forensic Science Program. Oh, I know her very well. And Lisa and I got to know each other in the early 2000s. And, and I told her at the time, I feeling was SNPs were much more powerful. And they were just so much easier, right? I mean, when you got to mixtures, there's just a lot of ways that they would be. And I also thought that from the perspective of doing rapid analysis, they would be so much easier in the long run. You were going to be able to do hundreds of SNPs more easily than you could do 20 STRs just analytically. And I said, within 10 years, Lisa, forensics is going to turn away from STRs and all be SNPs. And unfortunately, I'm wrong. <laughs> Technology has a way of, once it's in place, it, it's very hard to get it to change. The forensic community, I've said this publicly before, so looks at STRs and the database like a Linus blanket. That's God, if we change, we won't have the database. <laughs> right. And yet, how, what percentage of cases have actually been solved by the database? Now, it's increasing. I'm not saying it's not useful. Sure, yeah. But there's over-reliance on it, in my opinion. Sure, especially given the fact that what we now understand in terms of having the sheer number of SNPs available, understanding them so much better than we did before. It's just a different kind of question now than it was even 10 years ago or even five years ago. Well, said earlier, I've been funded for about 10 years by NIJ. And I got into not just testifying as a side issue to my main research, but to doing research in forensics or relevant to it because of the World Trade Center attack. 
Right. And it was partly Lisa who got me onto that committee, the KDAP. Mm -hmm. Kinship and Data Analysis Panel. Kinship and Data Analysis. Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of New York. Right. Mm -hmm. Office of Chief Medical Examiner. No article. (laughs) I did not know there was no article. The is not there. The issues that we dealt with, I had a lot of input with the population genetics, how many of the STRs have to match before you call it an identity, etc. And very good work and a lot, a lot of important work in setting standards that needed to be present but hadn't been. But they couldn't do ancestry. This was a multi-ethnic population of unknown mixture. Right. And ORCID presented a few SNPs because the DNA was so degraded, a lot of the larger short tandem repeat markers could not be tested for. Of course, some other things, John Butler had his shorter primers that he was And that came along at that time. Mm because he certainly saw that need very early on. But the SNPs that ORCID presented, we knew nothing about their frequency differences among populations, which is critical to the statistics. Right. We knew nothing about even where they were and how close some of them were to one another in terms of linkage or linkage disequilibrium. And linkage became very important because you were dealing with parent-child, you were dealing with siblings, Mm -hmm. where meiosis had intervened. And so that complicates the statistics. So I looked at that and toward the end of the meetings of that committee, and then we, a similar committee was constituted for Katrina. Okay. And still, SNPs were not possible. But that's when I said to myself, this is what I've been working on for, by then, 20 years. And we were also, by then, very much into the human diversity work collecting and establishing cell lines of populations from around the world. Mm -hmm. So we had the resources to look at frequency variation. We knew about SNPs. We knew where they were mapping. Sure. So I always associate a lot of that work that you did for NIJ actually as as we were talking earlier with anthropology because is just such a rich data set from that perspective in terms of understanding human populations. It's really extraordinary. Absolutely. And I can't say that forensics was my only rationale for doing those studies, (laughs) but I felt that they were certainly relevant to forensics. Sure. I was challenged when we first had to make some of the VNTR data available before publication because I mentioned it in a testimony and it was challenged. We can't see it. We've got to Mm -hmm. see the data on 
the Caratiana in Amazonia. And the counter-argument was, well, how do we know it wasn't a Caratiana or somebody from Papua New Guinea where everybody has the same markers at sure. high frequency, not this defendant? Mm -hmm. Yes, it matches the defendant, but that doesn't mean it's him. How do we know it's not somebody else? Sure. So to get around that, we deliberately looked at small isolated populations and could show that they still had very high levels of variation. So, okay, an African-American, maybe the probability of a random match was 10 to the minus 12, but in the Caratiana it was less, but still 10 to the minus 10. Right. Right. It's yeah. not that every Caratiana, you know, that's 10 zeros mm -hmm. before you get... It's so powerful in the sense that, yes, you can still individualize very within even very limited populations, but you can also, even if you have an unknown subject, do an enormous amount of work in terms of saying, yes, that was a Caratiana, if I'm pronouncing that one correctly, yes. type person, or within some sort of level of statistical characterization, which is exactly. also very powerful. You know, right now we're trying to collaborate on getting better markers for East Asians. Mm -hmm. Turns out East, Asian has, East Asia has much less genetic variation. They're further away from Africa. Variation was lost as humans expanded out of Africa from west to east. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard to distinguish a Japanese from a Chinese. Okay. I always uh, thought the European populations were, more, were worse in that regard than anyone. Within Europe, they're very difficult to distinguish. All right. But there's a clear north-south climb, and okay. the Middle East is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can't say that an Irish is different from a Dane. Most Irish have the Viking. Denmark was seat of a lot of the Vikings who then went west. Sure. Now, again, I'm going to quote you from one of your talks, and that is, uh, speaking of East Asian, so one of the things you said was that for, like, Taiwan, that there's a reasonable distinction between several populations of Taiwanese in terms of different times when there was immigration onto Taiwan. Like, the nationalist immigration is different from the immigration of, like, five or 600 A.D. Okay. I didn't say we could distinguish them, but... What we've tried to do is get more homogeneous samples from different regions of China and parts. And the sample we got was of the individuals that came 400 or so years ago from South Fujian mm -hmm. province, not those that came from Mongolia and Tibet and so on with the nationalists moving in. I see. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a sample of that ethnic gamish. I see. We do have samples of two of the aboriginal populations on the east of the island, and they're very different from Chinese. You've now looked at hundreds of different populations, is that right? 
And how much is that actually used we, in things like 23andMe? And I know you've been, you're disappointed in some of the work that's being, that's going on in terms of ancestry determination, I think. Yes, I am. But I don't think I want to get You don't want to do that, that on the podcast? Okay, on the podcast. Fine. But yes, I, I react negatively, shall we say, when I see the ad with the guy in Lederhosen saying, we thought we were German, but my DNA came back and said I'm Scottish. And so there he is in the kilt. Sure, right. You know. <laughs> and they're probably all Danes. <laughs> <laughs> so that level of distinction I don't like. Sure. But we can make a lot of distinctions. So right now, samples keep accumulating, and new markers and better markers keep accumulating. So a new sample gets typed for the best markers we're working on then. But to go back, markers we did five years ago that might be good for the new geographic region, mm -hmm. we just can't always do. We're not a big factory. Now, how powerful is a massively parallel sequencing? Because your talk this week is going to be really focusing on MPS and what you can tell from MPS, isn't that right? Yes. And that, that so, helps it to some degree in terms of being able to get this broader picture. So, one of the criticisms of SNPs has always been, well, it takes a lot more of them. And my response was, you can put a million SNPs on a chip. Which was the basis of my bet with Lisa, frankly, <laughs> is that you know, that was inevitable that that was going to be the case. But you need to interpret the individual ones correctly. And so you need the big database first. So we now have several thousand SNPs typed on 120 populations. And we're putting the best of those on some new ones. And then the first ancestry panel we published was put into Illumina and Thermo Fisher kits for sequence analysis. And so other people have studied those and published. So we now have on the web, on our website, 139 populations typed for those 55 SNPs. And population frequency data are there. So I run two databases that are also funded by NIJ. Right. Alfred and Frog, allele frequency database, and forensic research on genetics knowledge base. Which the FTCOE has helped to support some, yeah. Yes. So there are 55 SNPs that you have well characterized their population statistics for over 139 populations. Right, and in Frog, if you test those 55, you can enter into the database and it will tell you, rank ordered, what the random match probability is in each of those populations. And by logic of likelihood, the population for which that multi-locus genotype is most probable is the most likely population of origin. Sure. Most likely, not necessarily 
Correct. So rank ordered, you can see that, okay, this person from Scotland is most likely Irish, second most likely Dane, third most likely Swedish, because we don't have a Scottish sample. Right. Focuses on that Northern European tier as being the most likely ancestry. Mm -hmm. So today, there are two things that a forensic scientist can do with that 55 panel. One is if you have a crime scene stain and you have an unknown suspect, you can do pretty good ancestry, pretty reasonable ancestry using the 55 panel. And the other is because if you, when you have a known suspect and you want to associate that individual with the crime scene sample, you can use the database as well, as, just as you would with STRs, but maybe there might be some cases where STRs are a little more difficult to apply. You can use a SNP panel to do a representation of how likely it is the stain came from that individual. Yes, and with those 55 SNPs in most large European East Asian populations, not in the small isolates, it's around 10 to the minus 15. Right, which ain't bad. Which ain't bad. Yeah. You know, it's not like one in a hundred. Sure. Which is what it was with ABO blood group. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it's well more than the population of the earth as well. So it's pretty nice in that regard. And the other things that comment a little bit, if you will, because one of the reasons why this is a hobby horse of mine is mixture interpretation. A mixture interpretation is just so much easier when you're using SNPs. So we'll get to the transition from SNPs, which we started working on extensively, ancestry panels, postdocs in my lab, uh, visiting scientists have worked on refined East Asian differentiation, refined Southwest Asian Mediterranean mm -hmm. into the Middle East. She's giving a talk here at the AAFS meetings come from Turkey. And individual identity SNPs where because, as I mentioned, somebody said, well, how do we know it's not a Karatiana who was just here? And mm -hmm. all Karatianas have that. We searched through all of our SNPs and what resources were available on the web to find SNPs that had the rare condition of high heterozygosity almost every place in the world. That's not the normal situation. Sure. They normally have very different frequencies in different parts of the world. And so 45 of them are completely unlinked and give essentially every place in the world about a 10 to the minus 15 match probability. If you go up to 86 where there is linkage, but loose enough that there's no linkage disequilibrium. So as long as it's not a family situation, mm -hmm. just an identity situation, they're independent, and there it's 10 to the minus 30. Okay. Essentially around the world. But ancestry, given all my work with haplotypes, which we haven't talked about before, but 
was very important in lots of the papers I wrote early on mm -hmm. with DNA polymorphisms. I realized, and everybody in my lab realized, that we could get much more information if we could look at very close adjacent SNPs on the chromosome, where recombination through meiosis was very, very rare, mm -hmm. but could have occurred historically, and random drift raised it up. So there are multiple combinations present, but you're very unlikely to find a new crossover any place. Mm -hmm. And at about the same time, massively parallel sequencing came along. So the problem was phase. If you use Sanger sequencing, you can see three polymorphisms within 25 base pairs, but you don't know which allele is on which chromosome and what combination with the other. So if they're all A, B, and C, D for two, you don't know if A goes with C or A goes with D. And A, D, haplotype, may be very common, and AC very rare, but BC very common. So that's something that can be, and we do it statistically all the time. You can get good population estimates, but they're not that good for forensics for an individual definition of what it is. We may know that AD is very common in the population, but this defendant is A, B, C, D. We can't then automatically say he's B, C, A over A, D. Does it matter? I mean... Well, yes, because the defense will raise holy hell if you just have 99% certainty. Right. As they should. I'm not... Well, you know, yeah. The defense is important massively parallel sequencing separates those two chromosomes and gives you a read of only one of the chromosomes at a time. Mm -hmm. So from that individual, you're going to get two reads, and they're either AD and BC, or they're AC and BD, and you know exactly what that individual is. Does that mean that you need to use an MPS instrument if you're going to be able to reliably apply SNPs? As microhaplotypes, because now micro, very small segment of DNA, haplotypes of multiple SNPs. Yeah. So we can get easily six alleles at a locus based on the combinations of three SNPs. Mm -hmm. Actually, there are eight combinations possible, but maybe only six of them are ever seen. Right, right, or ever observed, yeah. Mm -hmm. But we can get those, we can estimate their frequencies very accurately with large populations. But for an individual, there are going to be many possible combinations if you use Sanger sequencing and just know it's heterozygous at all three mm -hmm. sites. It's very important that massively parallel sequencing be used. And now we've just submitted a paper where we've looked at the top 50 of those we've discovered, all less than 250 base pairs in length, different numbers of SNPs within that region, 
but 250 base pairs is well within the read length, mm -hmm. defined on 83 population. All of them are multi-allelic, so it's 50 loci, and we have 10 to the minus 45 is the random match probabilities. Okay. The same 50, those give up to 9 or 10 biogeographic ancestry clusters, which is as good as the 55 SNPs. And they're going to be excellent for family material because siblings have to have one of four out of the six sure. know, possible, com com or many alleles, they have to have two of the set of four that are present. So the power of what you might be able to do with familial association is just a completely different thing than what we can do now with STRs. And there's no stutter. Right. Stutter is not a four-letter word, but at <laughs> least in for, for the concept, it, is, it, yes. it yeah. mm -hmm. will consider it a four-letter word. Tomorrow, how much of your talk tomorrow is going to bring this up to date to what you're talking about? Right up to the last numbers I just gave you. Oh, okay. 10 to the minus 45? Is that, that's a new number. Yeah. That's quite a large, or rather a small number, as it were, depending upon how you look at it. And so we graph them negatively, so it's at the top of the graph. Sure. Of course, logarithmic. So I want to say it gives a higher value. Sure. <laughs> but of course, it's the more negative exponent, and hence the smallest values are at the top of the graph. Sure. Well, we'll make sure to link folks to that talk off the podcast page and vice versa so they can see all of that. So I tell folks, you know, you can actually be pretty proud. I know it's kind of frustrating because I would like to see SNPs be, be more widely used in forensic science going forward. But when you think about the fact that, you know, PCR itself is actually quite young, right? Yes. I mean, it didn't take but a handful of years for the forensic community to adopt that after the Nobel Prize in 96. I think it was invented in the late 80s, but then it got the Nobel Prize in, 90s, in the mid-90s. So the forensics community has actually done a pretty good job in general trying to bring new technology, new understanding in, and use what is really very much very cutting-edge science. Obviously, personal opinion, but not enough. Yes, that's fine. Not that's what this is for. And not fast enough. Yeah. They could do so much more with basically the same effort. It's now possible to multiplex for massively parallel sequencing, all of the standard CODIS markers, and a huge number of SNPs, a couple of hundred easily, and a hundred microhaplotypes. But those SNPs and those microhaplotypes should go into a database. Right. If that because were being, in yeah. the future, you're not going to get mixture deconvolution with the STRPs. You're just not. Sure. Maybe in a once in a while a clear one, but in general, no. But you certainly are with the microhaplotypes. The data on one amplification done by Daniele Bodini mm -hmm. in his lab with both the STRs and a bunch of microhaplotypes. He could identify the low content multiple contributors with the microhaplotype and could not 
with the STRPs on the same mixture in the same amplification and sequencing run. Right. And with the multiplexed assays, you can transition between the two regimes. Yes. Quite seamlessly in the long run. You should be able to start adding the new markers into databases, obviously linked. So this person has this for all three types of markers. And much of the existing data in the database, except for cold cases, ages out. Right. There aren't many 60-year-old rapists. Right. But 30 years ago, he could have been very active. Well, with the multiplexed assay, we'd, we'd still be able to pick that up in the long run if we needed to. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Kenneth Kidd, for being with us on Just Science. And please make sure that you subscribe. Make sure you get your students to, to listen in. And we appreciate your participation today. Well, thank you. Next week on Just Science, John speaks with Dr. David Carter, Director and Associate Professor of Forensic Sciences at Chaminade University of Honolulu about evaluating the skin microbiome as trace evidence on common surface types. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.